good to be here this morning, and, and we've been going through a tremendous series. If you've been following the past several weeks, Pastor David has been leading us in a series entitled, Living as a Minority in a Hostile World. And I would encourage you to listen and follow this 11-part series. Last week, we reminded that purity is our pursuit because God is the creator who establishes what is pure and righteous regarding our gender distinctives, our sexuality, and the purpose of marriage. You know, however, to hold these beliefs places, places us in a time where we will be tested when trying to uphold these truths. One of the major challenges as living as distinct in this world is our own assumptions and beliefs that if we can only just reason, maybe clearly articulate, educate, and persuade others, they would, there would be just a civil reply and understanding to one another. Not always. And I'm sure many of you experience that. We try that approach on so many levels as parents, and many of you parents know that for sure, uh, as ones in authority, whether you are an educator, perhaps an employer, a supervisor, as an elder, a law enforcement officer, or perhaps even as a friend, a fellow friend. You know, the, the scriptures describe the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The gospel is veiled. It's covered in a heart of unbelief. And really, people are really dead. They really are dead. Maybe not physically, but spiritually dead and in their trespasses and sin. But we often forget this fact. And we respond angrily. And this certainly shows up as parents. We just like, come on, understand. But sometimes we have to come to recognize they may be an unbelief. It happens in our marriage, in communicating with one another, in families, in friendships, and even among fellow members here in the church. And our anger comes in forms, and it is amazing how we can quickly believe that I have a right. I have a right to be angry. Really? Let me say up front that most of our angry responses are not necessarily godly responses according to the scriptures. They are generally the product of an inflated view of our opinions, our beliefs, or our perceptions. And I'm not trying to cover all the aspects of anger this morning, but really trying to focus on this theme of our anger, our anger in response to a world that is growing more hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we'll seek to understand why the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God in order that we may remain steadfast, steadfast in this hostile world. The outline I seek to preach is as follows. I kind of try to break it down to anger defined, anger differentiated, anger's destruction, anger displayed, anger disarmed, and anger discovered. That's a lot to cover, but I trust that The Spirit of God will just illumine our hearts this morning. Well, what is anger? Anger defined. In our communities, we hear in the news or see on television that people are very 
are, are very angry. They're protesting on matters they perceive as unjust or slandering and speaking forth hatred of people's views or their character. And, and you see that all around every day. And even on a larger scale, we see anger resulting in wars, all types of crimes and evil activities, hostilities all over, and, and it can be quite discouraging. On a personal perspective, many of us here can often detect anger in others. We would say, hey, that guy's really mad. He's in a rage, or she's, she's irritable, or he's explosive, or he's got fiery eyes, or she's cold and distant. Any of you can relate to that? Um, yeah. In a book entitled Uprooting Anger by Robert D. Jones, he describes it as, quote, Anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. In other words, we don't like when evil, as we see it, is being carried out. So we respond negatively. And our angry response involves our total being. I mean, our heart, soul, and mind. David Paulison, in his new book entitled Good and Angry, says, quote, Anger always makes a value judgment. Anger is always a moral matter. And he states so well in his book that the core of anger lies in three common associations. Number one, we identify some perceived wrong. We take a stance of disapproval and feel displeasure. And then third, in some way, we are moved to action to say or do something about it. And the bottom line is judgmentalism, right? We, we act as jury, judge, and oftentimes executioner in just letting know how we are angry at that person or the event. Or, and, and so anger defined is very clear that you know when a person is anger. Oftentimes, I should say. Oftentimes we don't. But as anger is defined, it's just we perceive something that is evil and, and now we're going to respond to that. But I want to now differentiate. There are different types of anger. And, and so moving on from anger defined to anger that's di- differentiated. I'm, and I categorize it in three types. Because anger, as I said earlier, anger is a moral judgment. There is a good and there is a bad anger. When God is angry, it is always good. Why? Because God is holy. He sees perfectly. He responds perfectly and performs judiciously because he is God. And he is the one who determines what is good and evil. What is righteous and unrighteous. So the first type of anger is really against unrighteousness as defined by God. Anger at its best, it it does bring good out of bad situations, by standing up for the helpless and the victimized. According to, again, David Paulison, quote, he says, anger is a response to the feeling of displeasure at seeing sorrow, injustice, or indifference. It is constructive because it intervenes to address and solve whatever problem is in view. It is mercy because it allows us to imitate God in hating suffering and expressing love to sufferers and helping those who are suffering to find joy and peace. So we ought to be angry when we see the unborn killed 
When evil runs rampant through murder, rape, robbery, the list goes on in this hostile world. Not only to Christians, but to all men. And we live in a world that rages against all that is good as defined by God. So when we read the scriptures and anger is displayed by God, it is understandable because he judges rightly. But people often say, you know, life in the past was sure much better. So much better. But I'm, of the, I'm not of the belief of the good old days. Whether it was a few generations ago or hundreds of years ago, the only good old days was before the fall. Before sin entered the world through Adam. God described those days as very good. But there's a second type of anger, and this is most common. The ungodly anger of unrestrained passion. And if you had your outline there, it should have kind of switched those points. But um, the second type of anger really is, once again, the ungodly anger of unrestrained passion. And, and it finds its sources in, in three arenas that the scripture disca- uh, describes. First, it, the tongue. And James describes it well that with, it, with our tongues, James chapter 3 Verse 9, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. So from our tongue, that evil comes from there. It comes from the covetous heart. James goes on and says in chapter 4, that what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It comes from our hearts. Jesus says it well in in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, that, that the source of all the evil comes from within our hearts. The Apostle Paul describes it a third source. It comes from our mind. And the Apostle Paul spells that out really well there in Romans chapter 1. And he writes there in Romans chapter 1 verse 28. He says, since people did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manners of unrighteousness. And then he goes on and describes what those are. But he goes on to chapter 2 in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 and he says and he turns around and points at all of us therefore you have no excuse old man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves because you the judge practice the very same things we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things do you suppose old man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, all of us here in this room are guilty as well, that, that our tongues, our hearts, our minds are filled with this ungodly anger of unrestrained passion. But there's a third type of anger, and I call it the unbiblical view of righteousness. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on um, You know, as we are under 
more pressures today, we'll be tested. We will be tested in our relationships to one another. As Pastor David has been going over through this series, we live as, as one's a distinct minorities in a hostile world. We're going to be tested. Um, and when Pastor David asked me several weeks ago to cover for him, um, the topic of anger came to mind on how our virtues as followers of Christ can be undermined. Everything that he has listed out can all be undermined by our anger. See, when we get angry, there's the feeling of self-righteousness. I'm right, and you're wrong. And the problem is that our anger can cloud our judgment by elevating our opinions and our beliefs and be convinced that our anger is justifiable or even righteous. And we can quickly divide and separate. We can even leave a church or no longer have fellowship with family and friends. It's amazing how our hearts can be easily deceived from what God has declared as righteous to all of a sudden it is no longer righteous. So I get it when our so I get it, you know, when our society in general is becoming more angry because they perceive what they are entitled to be angry on some perceived injustice. Because um, the their worldview rejects God's word. But our theology, ones who have an understanding of God's word, our theology should determine our action. And yet, what happens is our pride our, and our response clouds that quickly. Pastor David mentioned several weeks ago that humility is our character. And as followers of Christ. That means humility and anger are mortal enemies. And so what I began was to say that as anger is defined, and and there's the differentiation of anger, I want to note that that anger leads to destruction. Our anger, even as what we think is righteous anger, leads to destruction. I want to point it out in three ways. Anger is destruction. We see it, anger showing up early on in Genesis chapter 4. Soon after, you know, a relationship with Adam and Eve and their, their children. But you see in chapter 4 in Genesis that as the two sons, Cain and Abel, give sacrifice, the Lord had regard for Abel. This is found in Genesis 4, chapter, uh, verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. You know, for Cain, he was very angry that his spiritual activity was not acceptable to God. Cain believed that his sacrifice was acceptable. And when told otherwise, he was angry. You know, are we guilty of this same principle of not getting our way? And we sin against God by our attitudes and our words. We may not kill a brother. 
physically, I hope not. But we kill them with our words in the form of slander and speaking ill of one another. So the curse of anger leads to that destruction. The second point of anger's destruction is, is the captivity, the captivity of that destruction. It's found there in Ephesians 4. Paul writes there, you know, and it's, Ephesians is an amazing book because the first three chapters speaks about God's mercy and love upon the people of God. And then chapter 4 through 6 is the application. But he writes there in, in verse 26. Many of you are familiar with this passage, Ephesians four twenty-six. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down over your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. You know, another destructive effects of anger is the allowance for Satan to speak falsehood in one's mind. And that is why Paul stated in the previous verse to put away, to put away falsehood. Let each one of you are to speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. But what happens? We let anger come in. And we begin to ascribe evil motives. We assume the worst in others of someone else. And we quickly judge and condemn them in our minds. And this happens in all levels of relationships. And it leads us to be held captive to those lies. And the father of all lies is whom? Is the devil. But we, we just give it up, give in. And the sad part of all this is it's really our allowance. It's our allowance and our invitation for the devil to engage in our lives, to destroy relationships. You know, this, the translation there in Ephesians 4.26, to be angry, is not a license. It's not a license to become angry. But perhaps a better translation is, is when you become angry. Again, what is anger? Anger is responding to the belief that we were wronged or the action by that someone was not right and we're responding negatively. In other words, you know, anger is common. It happens all the time. And I would venture to say that we get angry for many reasons throughout the day or even hourly, perhaps even the last hour. I hope not. (laughs) But Paul is addressing to not allow our anger to remain within our hearts and minds. Otherwise, we lose in becoming, by becoming prisoners in our own thoughts of how we were wronged. It's really sad, but we often nurse the hurt by replaying the pain of being wronged. Our world is filled with men and women, boys and girls, who are held captive by their anger. And it leads to all kinds of consequences including depression and despair. So anger's destruction is not only a curse, not only it leads to captivity, but even more tragic, it leads to being cast away. What do I mean by cast away? Anger's destruction ultimately leads to eternally cast away from heaven to hell. Paul tells us there in Galatians 5, that now the word in chapter 5, verse 19 Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. How evident are they? He lists a number of things, but he says, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy. And Paul goes on and says, I warn you. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the destruction of man for all eternity is rooted in an unrighteous anger. Ultimately, you know what it is? It's an anger towards God. I mentioned anger defined, anger differentiated, anger's destruction. It leads to, perhaps you need some examples, anger displayed. And I want to transition to how anger shows up within even the followers of Christ, even including you and I. Once again, this morning, anger comes from within. And it's due to an unbiblical view of righteousness. Let me give you uh, some examples here. I think of Moses. Moses' anger. You know, Moses was considered the most humble man. And yet, he was not immune to anger. Scripture records two incidents in which Moses strikes out in anger. Forty years before the Exodus, he kills a man. It's found there in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And now 40 years later, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 8, here Moses is leading the people of Israel out of the bondage of slavery, out of Egypt. And he's led them near to the promised land. And he's given instruction, Moses and Aaron, is given instruction by God. It's found there in Numbers 20. And in verse 8, it says, God speaks and says, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Again, the people are complaining. They're thirsty. And where's God in all this? So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their, and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with a staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. You know, is there a lesson here for the rest of us? Moses, Moses was fed up. He was fed up with the people's complaints for 40 years. And it got to him. We can, we can all relate to that. It doesn't take 40 years, 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but ordinarily, we can say we may, keep, we may be able to keep things under control. But under certain circumstances, we are liable to act on impulse and do things that we deeply regret later on. And the problem is not just our past angers. But our failure to bring the past to the Lord 
for perspective and healing and asking God for help. And so we are just susceptible as Moses was. And it's amazing how the power of unrighteous anger can lead to many broken relationships. As I said before, just unrighteous anger separates families. It separates friendships. It separates churches. It separates communities. And right now, it even threats our nation and our world. And we are not above this problem before a holy God. Moses was not above it. And he didn't make it to the promised land. Let me give you another example in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a couple. Peter. Peter's anger. A righteous anger. At least he thought it was. In defending the Lord. It's recorded there in John chapter 18, verse 10. Also in in Luke chapter 22, verse 49. But John records there, Then Simon Peter, having a sword... What was happening there? Again, Judas was there to betray Jesus. But it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Luke records that when Peter did that, Jesus said, no more of this. You know, Peter believed he was doing the right thing. Even earlier, he was saying he was willing to die for Jesus. But the Lord rebukes Peter. I think of the Apostle John. John's anger. John, the son of thunder. Jesus' right-hand man. Who believed that he was a righteous man for, for God. But when things didn't go the way he thought it should... He, along with his brother James, presumed upon their power and prestige and and declared upon that Samaritan village. As they were were walking towards Jerusalem, Jesus was set, headed towards Jerusalem, and the Samaritan village did not receive Jesus. It's recorded there in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. James and John saw it, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, in today's vernacular, we would say, should we nuke them? Should we nuke this town? What what I'm citing here by way of example are three men who appear to have a, a righteous anger, if not an understandable one. And oftentimes we we find ourselves justifying or excusing our behavior, stating that there was a valid reason for my angry output. You know, when you look through the scriptures, there's many examples of of anger being expressed. Some righteous and unrighteous. I think of Absalom when his sister was raped by his half-brother Amnon. Or Dinah's brothers. Or Saul, his jealousy with David getting all this attention. Or Esau with Jacob. Jacob with Laban. Jonah. Sarah. There's just numerous examples you can see throughout the scriptures of anger. But it would be an interesting study to list all the angry actions by even God-fearing men and women throughout the scriptures and discover whether the anger was righteous or unrighteous. So I noted this is anger displayed just by example. But the beauty is anger is disarmed through the gospel. So I go from anger that was displayed to anger 
that was disarmed through the gospel. I do believe that much of our angry response, even our righteous anger, can be tempered when we look upon God's mercy and patience upon our own lives. I think of, once again, John, the man, the man of power, the man of the, Jesus' right-hand man. John reflects upon his own life. And he could honestly say, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not because he was a better man, but he saw how God loved him despite his proud and angry heart. You know, as John understood God's love for him, John's own heart was changed from an attitude of judgment and seeking personal gain to becoming the apostle of love. You may be saying, yeah, you know, I, I love God. It's, it's God's people who I'm having a hard time loving. And uh, that may be true. But John confronts people like us who make those kind of expressions. He confronts us. And I remember early on in my Christian life, I was really struggling with loving someone very close to me. Because I felt he did something very wrong. And I just held, I, I couldn't love him. But I came across 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And John confronts all of us this way. He writes, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The gospel can change John's heart. The gospel changes Paul's heart. I think that the apostle Paul, his name was Saul before, the man of prominence, Paul writes there in Galatians 1 that in, in verse 13 that for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul tells about his background to Timothy and he says there in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 that though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, the gospel changed Paul's heart as he reflects upon God's mercy upon his life. To the point that he can even state there in Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans just, Paul declares about God's mercy upon God's people for the first 11 chapters. And then he transitions in there in chapter 12 about how do we live in view of God's mercy. And he writes, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them, even when you're wronged or people get angry at you. Repay no one evil for evil. This is found in verse 17. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
In other words, do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what the gospel does to angry men, even angry righteous men. And to see it in John's life, to see it in Paul's life, but you also see it in Peter's life as well. When you consider Peter, that man who felt like he was doing something righteous by drawing that sword. But Peter writes, when you look at 1 Peter, throughout his writing there in the uh, book of 1 Peter, Peter addresses this whole issue of anger, of how we re- to respond. He writes about putting away malice, to abstain the passions of the flesh, to keep yourself honorable among unbelievers. It's a list of passages, and I'm not going to run through. I'm just, just listen to, and you can look it up. It's found in chapter 2, 3, and 4. But we are to be subject to every human institution. We are to be a blessing. You are blessed. Be self-controlled, sober-minded. Love one another. Peter's writing after he recognized God's mercy on his life, that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And we are to live differently as, as minorities in this hostile world. You know, anger is disarmed when there's a wholehearted recognition and submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, when one is tempted to unrighteous anger, or one becomes a recipient of one's unrighteous anger, it is, criti- it is critical to exercise self-control by being steadfast. And that means, steadfast means to be settled in your own heart. You know, the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, fully understood this well because as being a minority in, this, in the hostile world, suffering was a real test. And it's a test for all of us of our belief that God's in control. He certainly saw this James saw this in his brother Jesus, and he writes to his Jew- Jewish audience that's being dispersed because of persecution. And, and Zach read it earlier there, found in chapter 1. You count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, various, you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed, he writes later on, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, James writes this because he understands that that there is the temptation. When you're under a lot of duress, under a lot of stresses, that temptation to anger is very real. And he urges the reader there in James to just slow down. And recognize that God is allowing this difficult situation or this difficult person in your life for a reason. And he says, he says there in James chapter 1 verse 17, he says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, we are being set up. We are being set up on display by God himself to demonstrate God's character. And we are either displaying his attributes accurately or we are misrepresenting him poorly. 
And so James further writes, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so you may be asking, well, how do I do that? Good question. It leads us to anger discovered, just a practical application. And I give you five points of this, of how do we practically discover our own anger? Let me just first state that it doesn't come overnight. (laughs) It's a process. But I would first start with just encircle, encircle yourself with godly influences who can help identify your anger or your sin. And that's part of why we promote small groups is, is to, to bear one another's burdens. But I think of Titus chapter 2 of, of younger men and women to be taught by older men and women. To be why? To be discreet, sober, temperate, of a sound mind. That means to be just self-restrained in their passion and desires. We need each other. And small groups really help facilitate. So my encouragement to you, one just practical step is to encircle yourself with godly influences. And that can come through the small groups. Or find an older brother or sister and go to them and say, Brother, can you help me along? We are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? In order that we may be healed. And, and thus... Encircle yourself. My first point there, in the practical, by way of practical application, is encircle yourself with godly influences who can help identify your anger. Second is, is to eliminate ungodly influences. When you go back to James chapter 1 there, where I was quoting 120, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James goes on on the next verse there in verse 21. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. How do you do that? I've said this before. Not in this morning, but in times past, I've said this before that what you love and what you hate reveals what you are. And you need to put away those influences and they come on strong in our society Our media just is steeped with this false belief that you need to seek revenge. You need, you are a victim and, and you need to express your anger um, by inciting violence in all forms or just, there's so many ungodly influences that come around and, and you need to put away those things. You need to eliminate those ungodly influences. And then what you need to do, third point, is to you need to establish. You need to establish the word of God in your life. James goes on there. Not only therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, but receive with meekness. That means to receive it with gentleness or with humility, the implanted word. Why? Because it is able to save your soul. How can a young man, how can an old man keep his way pure? By what? Keeping according to his word, as found in Psalm 119. You need to hide God's word in your heart. You need to establish that word of God to save your soul. Fourth, you need to elevate. 
your thoughts Godward to Christ. You know, when we look at Christ as revealed in his word, we see that God has orchestrated all of life events for such a time as this. You know, nothing that comes our way is by accident or by chance. You're not a victim. Well, you can be a victim in the sense that you're the recipient of, of ungodly stuff. But, but how we respond is a real test of our faith and our sincerity of whether we believe God is sovereign. And Peter reminds the audience in First Peter that, that you've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light. And, and he lists out a number of things found in chapter 2, verse 21 and on, that you've been called for this purpose, to suffer, to be the recipient of much of other people's anger. But that's not how you're supposed to respond. So you need to elevate and look at Christ. Because Peter reminds that when you look at Christ, it's found there in verse 24 of chapter 2, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You know, when you look, when you elevate your thoughts Godward towards Christ and you see that, how did Christ respond when people responded poorly to him? He is our example. Finally, not only encircling yourself with godly influences, eliminate God, uh, ungodly influences, establishing the word of God in your life, elevating your thoughts Godward, but finally entrust one's life to the only sovereign God. You know, when I, when I read the writings of both James and Peter, and I made reference to both of those, um, by the way, you, no, this is not an exposition of a particular passage, but as I selected just different passages, I, I think of James and Peter. They were dealing with two different audiences. James was dealing with Jews who were being dispersed, and Peter was writing to the Gentiles who were being dispersed. And, but there was a common issue. They were considered minorities in a hostile world. They were pilgrims, exiles, strangers. And they're being singled out because of their allegiance and declaration to the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, what I'm trying to say is nothing has changed. Nothing has changed for the past 2,000 years. We are not of this world. And it's quickly spiraling downwards. But all is not hopeless and we are not helpless. We look to Jesus and follow his way. When, we, when Peter reminds us that Jesus committed no sin, neither deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Rightly, when you look to him, I can be at rest. He knows my pain. He knows. Even when that anger inside, you just feel like this is just not right. And I want to just scream out. Peter reminds us in chapter four, verse 19, that therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what's at stake? Closing thoughts here. What's at stake? Your glory or his? 
Too often, our anger stems from the belief that we have full knowledge, full perception, and full understanding. And the other party lacks all of the above, and we label them as idiots or some other demeaning term. You know what can undermine our faith in trusting a sovereign king and ruler of our lives is the giving in to our anger. In other words, we can be our own worst enemy. I say this as a pastor. I say this as a husband. I say this as a father. And as a follower of Jesus Christ. I confess to you that even my anger, my ability to falsely believe that I have a right to be angry of someone at someone, even in my wife or my children, or a family or friend or neighbor, or someone in the church. Uh, you know, when I hold that, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm undoing my faith because my anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God, but it diminishes. It diminishes my understanding that God is good all the time. And his allowance of my perceived offense is to what? It's to grow me. It's to grow you into his image. And I must preach this to myself. And you must preach this to yourself. That God is in control. He knows. He knows and understands your predicament. Recently, I was reading the life of uh, George Whitfield, a pastor whose influence was really profound, uh, both in England and in, in America back in the 1700s. He once wrote these words when tempted to be angry after being, mal- being maligned by friends and fellow ministers. He says, quote, Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. You know, I hope that I would have that kind of perspective. It's not about me. It's not about you. But it's, it's about Christ in us. So may God help us to echo the words of Paul found there in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, the gospel does a transformation in our hearts from feeling this anger that wells within us to say, it's wrong and I want to do something about it, to saying, no, I can trust God even when people wrong me. People do harm to me. It's easy to give in to our own flesh, but may I appeal to you as a fellow fellow struggler in this arena of anger to say, no, let's by humility and by faith trust upon the one who created us, who saved us, so that we may shine as lights in this dark world. May God help us. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, I just think of the words of the psalmist 
in Psalm 57 that be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. O Father, may it be so of us that we don't respond angrily when we are treated unkindly, unfairly. When life doesn't go our way. Oh, Father, help us to be a people who humbly submits that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, temper us. Restrain us. Constrain us from doing things that do harm to the body of Christ. Cause us not to be ones who defame the name of Christ by our anger. Lord, be, help us to be a people who will be humble in heart to receive whatever befall. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Father, help us in those moments of unbelief. We ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.